Welcome to Dream Up by Burdock, a weekly podcast show connecting you with inspiring Asian American creatives by exploring what they do and the paths that got them there. This is Dream Up. Hi, this is Peter Ashley. Today I'll be speaking with Michelle Lee, the editor-in-chief of Allure. Allure is a leading beauty magazine published by Condé Nast. Since taking the helm at Allure in 2015, Michelle has been committed to championing diversity and expanding the definition of beauty. Hi, Michelle. Hey, how are you? Good. How's it going? Good, good. It's been a crazy week. We've been moving. So hence my, like, I don't have like my whole Zoom set up yet. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to start off, if you could introduce yourself and tell us what you do. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Michelle Lee. I'm the editor-in-chief of Allure. Can you describe what a day-to-day looks like as the editor-in-chief of Allure magazine? I I always love this question because I feel like the answer for everyone is always, well, there's no standard day. Right. <laughs> and that's definitely, definitely the case for me. I, I kind of always start off by saying I've been working in media and specifically women's media for the past like 24 years. And when I was first starting out, my first job as an intern was at Glamour. And so the editor-in-chief was Ruth Whitney back then. And I always remember being an editor-in-chief back then was this huge, amazing job, of course, but you had one thing, you had the magazine. And so nowadays, we ha- I have the magazine, but I also have so many other things on top of that. So I've got the magazine, the website, social media, we have different products, we have the Allure Beauty Box, we have video, we have, we're working on some long form video projects. There's just so many things now for an editor in chief to do that I like to think of myself more as a CEO in a way that it's like you're kind of dealing with all these different departments and all these different businesses now. At that same time, though, that's what makes it really exciting. And it's what makes my day never the same. The fact that I might be closing pages on a magazine issue one time, but then also turning around and having business meetings with clients. I might be working on a video project or filming myself in my bathroom doing a social media video. I think working within beauty is such an exciting time because the industry has really like exploded. It's become such a huge world, but it's also this very cool job where I get to be creative, but I also get to be business minded too. Right. And I just want to take a step back. If you could walk us through the journey of how you got started. Oh, yes. It's like, it's a very long convoluted journey. It's funny because my kids, um, so I have a 15 year old, a 12 year old and a seven month old. And so my older two know the broad strokes of how I've gotten to where I am, but I've never really talked like in granular detail with them. So I had a long car ride with my daughter the other day, like literally three, three or four days ago. And so she started asking me questions and she wanted to know every single little detail of how I got to where I am. And so it took probably an hour for me to like explain. <laughs> so I'll give you the, the cliff notes version of it. Sure. Um, my career in a nutshell I'm very much a generalist and I've done a ton of things. Like when I say a ton, it it has really stretched. It's really uh, spanned many, many different things. I grew up mostly in Connecticut and then my dad got a job in Florida. So we moved down there and I stayed down there for college and I was very much a bored student when I was in high school and college. So I really just wanted to get to work. So my last two years of college, I started working already. So already, even before I graduated with a degree in magazine journalism, I had a good two years of writing and editing under my belt. So like I said, my first job when I moved to New York City was as an intern at Glamour. And from there, I became a total job hopper. 
And I worked, I think the first maybe six or seven years of my career being every place for about a year and sometimes under. And so that's why it's like when I walk people through my career, it sounds so insane because I'm like, and then I was here and then I was here and then I was here. And then of course I had some like longer stretches of time, but to give you the, the super condensed version of things, I worked a lot in women's media at Glamour, Mademoiselle. I wrote for pretty much everybody you can imagine, Elle, Lucky, Marie Claire, Cosmo. I also did a lot of men's. Um, I wrote for Men's Health, GQ, Maxim way back in the day. But then on top of that, the reason I say I'm a generalist is I've written about cars. I've written about extreme sports, finance, technology, food, health and fitness, kids, older people. Like <laughs> I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. And so in, in the very beginning of my career, that meant try everything. <laughs> so, you know, now that in the past 10, 15 years of my career, I've focused much more into women's and style and culture. It took this long journey for me really to discover what it is that I wanted to do. Right. So you're saying even your major in college was in magazine publishing? Yep. Yep. So specific, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I was definitely not that kid who knew exactly what I wanted to do. I, I know people, my cousin Alex is an amazing chef. And from a very young age, he was growing his own herbs in like the backyard, like as a little kid, that kid knew he wanted to be a chef. For me, I had no clue up until my sophomore year of college, when they said you have to pick a major. And I always feel like I fell into journalism. But when I look back at my life, I think it was what I was meant to do because I always loved writing. I liked reading, but I was very curious. And so it all made sense eventually. And I don't know what it was that made me specifically pick magazine journalism. Um, but once I did it, I even loved the process of there were classes where it taught you layout and how to put things together. And I think that was part of it too, was that journalism feeds one side of your brain, but then the creative aspect of it visually helps to kind of turn another side of it on too. And I, I liked both of those things. Because I think even for myself, I'm just such a huge fan of printed matter and just have this, even with Burdock, we, we just love the tactile experience of having a physical magazine. How do you think things are changing as far as the way people interact with print publication and digital media? Yeah. Well, I'm so happy you said that about print because I feel the same way. I always say that it is a different experience. I think having something that's printed feels very curated and special. And so when you think about the internet, it is vast and endless. If I wanted to, I could hire, well, I don't know if I could really do this because you need a, a huge budget. You could hire a thousand people if you wanted to, right? And write endless amounts of stories for the internet, produce endless amounts of video. With a magazine, there's a finite number of pages. So you know that the editors have curated the stuff that they really want you to pay attention to. And I think that there's something very special about being able to say to somebody, look at this beautiful layout and look at the things that we would really like you to pay attention to. That being said, the value of digital is also enormous. And you can certainly do a more curated internet as well, where you have placement of things and like, you know, people are doing amazing, gorgeous layouts now. That being said, so many people are looking on their phones and like our phones, my little teeny tiny screen. You know, when I look on a, a giant desktop, the experience of that is so different from looking on my little iPhone. So I think we have to really start thinking of platforms as you're in a different mindset 
when you're consuming different things. And I'm certainly not the first person to say that reading a magazine is a lean back experience. To me, that's how I, how I consume most magazines is I'm on the sofa, I'm in bed or something, and you can really dig into something and pay attention to it. Whereas on the internet, I'm scrolling, I'm kind of like looking at things really quickly. Again, like I probably consume many, many, many more hours on my phone and on my iPad and on my computer than I do in a printed magazine. But when I am in those moods of where I want to lean back and really dig into something, I still love that printed page. Right. And I like how you said it's something that's curated by an editor because, you know, I was having a conversation on the last podcast with a fellow creator, Christelle DeCastro, and she was kind of speaking on just how nowadays because of Instagram and we were saying that things seem to be more fleeting and you know, we're constantly creating content, but often it's, it doesn't last very long. Unlike say a print magazine where it's been edited and curated and you've decided exactly what's going in there and you've set the pace of how this story will be narrated. So there's something really nice about that, that I think is so different from the experience of say something like an Instagram feed, which I also think is important, but is a complete different experience, right? Yeah. They're, they're totally different. And it's funny because I've been at Allure for five years now. And when I first started, people used to ask me all the time, okay, you guys are the beauty Bible. How are you going to compete with YouTube? Like it was always, there are so many YouTube influencers um, and they've become so huge. And I was like, we're just different. Like, I don't see us as competitive. We can be we can compliment one another and we can certainly do each, like we could have a YouTuber doing something for the magazine. We could do something for YouTube, but I just think that there's a different expertise and there's just a different experience. And I feel that same way with digital and print as well. And I, I am hopeful that people keep talking about how it's a generational divide, right? Like that used to be the thing that, Oh, the older generations still love print and the younger generation is all about digital. I don't think that's the case. I actually think that there is this return to the tangible with a lot of young people as well. So before I was at Allure, I was the editor in chief and chief marketing officer at Nylon. And our audience there was, I mean, this was, I was there five years ago, but it's like, it would be very much considered Gen Z and younger millennials. And that audience loved print. It still was that audience that was cutting out pictures from magazines and making collages. Like people do that online all the time, but they were literally doing it in like a physical form. And I even look at my kids too, that I think because so much has happened in their lifetime virtually, they really like to have that tangible thing. Like my daughter, especially, like she loves ordering physical stickers and stuff that she can actually feel. And so when I mentioned before, like we have other products like the Allure Beauty Box, I think that there's something about receiving something in your home that feels special. And especially in these days of COVID too, where a lot of us are spending a lot more time at home, I think it's really nice to be able to get that special kind of like little care package. Right. And I also want to touch on beauty because as the editor of the Beauty Bible lore, I just want to ask what you've noticed and I guess how beauty has changed and what beauty means in 2020. Yeah. Well, I think about you guys, honestly, and what you're doing with Burdock, because I feel like it's so important. And it's also very, I think it's a big symbol of where I hope that beauty is going. Again, I, I mark things by the five years that have been at Allure. When I started, it's crazy to think that just five years ago, the beauty and fashion world was so not diverse. 
like you remember, right? Like yeah. I'm not saying that it's a hundred percent there. Like it's certainly not. There's definitely way, way, way more room for growth. But five years ago, if you look at magazine covers, for example, it was still very much the tall, skinny white lady was the pinnacle of beauty. And within the past five years, I think that it has gotten much more diverse. It was a process though. And I like to think that Allure helped to push a lot of that, especially my second year there, we started really doing some covers that were would, were considered unconventional, I think, at the time, and were considered by some to be risky. You know, I, I just did a speaking engagement last week, and I was saying that a lot of the cover stars, it was always kind of Jennifer Aniston and Taylor Swift. And I love them. Don't get me wrong. But they were on every single cover. And now when you look across covers, it's really different. And I'm glad the fact that people are veering outside of like that small circle. And so, yeah, in 2017, we started doing some some really interesting covers. We had Halima Adden on our cover in her hijab with the cover line, This is American Beauty Now, right after the Trump travel ban. And so I think for me, that was one of our covers that was like, it was pivotal because it helped to me establish that we as this mainstream beauty brand, as the beauty expert, we really could change the way that beauty was perceived in this country. And I think that a lot of times the thing that really annoys me is when people say, like, if I say something political and they'll say stick to beauty, I'm like, but beauty is so much more than just lipstick and mascara and nails and stuff. And we of course love those things, but I now see it as our mission is really to help redefine what is beautiful. And it is breaking us out of that box that the image of beauty is just the tall, skinny white lady. Cause it's not that it's so much more than that. And I think that we're constantly trying to push that boundary. So when I, when I think about how it's evolved and how it's changing, I think that there's been a democratization of beauty for sure, not just caused by media brands, but caused by YouTube, by social media, um, I think we have so much more access to seeing different people and seeing what's beautiful in other parts of the world, not just even in our own country. And also by, you know, I think, you know, I, I was talking about generations before. I do think that the younger generation, like they are exposed to so much more in terms of what can be beautiful and what, you know, like uh, even acne, for example, right? When I was in high school, we would always try and like hide our pimples or like I, I would be mortified if I had a pimple down here and I'm like always trying to hide it with my hand, like going like this. Right. <laughs> Whereas, you know, today kids are wearing star stickers because they're like, oh, it's acne acceptance. They're putting their, you know, themselves on social media and being like, look at my acne. Like, I feel like there's, there's less, well, I don't know. It's hard. It, it It's a mix. I was going to say, I feel like there's more acceptance of certain things and it's like putting yourself out there in a real way. On the flip side of it, there are certainly a lot of filters and other things that if you look at that side of social media, mm-hmm. I do think that part of it has been kind of still feeding into like the negative side of beauty that like there has to be this perfection of zero pores on your skin and, you know, no bags under your eyes and stuff. So I don't know. There's pros and cons. I feel like I started out with an argument and then I'm like, well, <laughs> we're not there. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you use the word risky covers, you know, from a lot of creative people in different mediums, you always hear this idea that doing something unconventional is somehow, I guess, the higher ups in business are concerned that it's not going to perform as well. And is that the case or what's been your experience? Does it actually have like a positive response? Yeah. I'm very fortunate in that my bosses have always said to me, take risks, 
do something bold. I think that for the most part, like the executives at my company understand that you have to stand for something and you can't just play to everybody. So I've talked about that a lot where I think in the earlier part of my career, I thought I had to make everybody happy. And it's actually not the road to success because you have to choose a lane and you have to have a strong viewpoint. So that's exactly what we did. And sometimes our quote unquote risky covers performed well from a, I guess, a traditional standpoint, like the traditional metric for whether something did well was, is it selling on the newsstand? I don't think that should be the metric anymore though. And I think most magazine companies have really moved away from that because the newsstand is not what it used to be. One, there aren't that many of them anymore. If you look out into like the rest of the country, are people really buying magazines in the grocery store checking line? Are they going to Hudson News? Where Hudson News is very East Coast. Now, I think that the metric for me is partly newsstand, maybe like a small part, but it's also how did it do online? How did it do on social media? But even more than all of those things is what was the brand effect? So if something by traditional metrics maybe didn't do well, I might actually still consider it a success if it helped to move the needle on who we are as a brand. And I think that, you know, again, the perception of Allure, I think has always been, we're really great at products. People know us for our best of beauty awards, but I really wanted to move us in this direction of, we help make cultural change. We've done like I said, you know, the Halima cover had such huge impact. Um, we had Helen Mirren on our cover and we declared we were going to stop using the term anti-aging, had a huge global impact. And to this day, people are still asking me about it and talking about it. We also have had so many Asians on our cover, but that was not always the case. We, uh, in 2018, put three Asian models on our hair cover. And before that, we had had Lucy Liu, I guess 10 years ago, and then Olivia Munn was the the other one. So yeah, right off the bat in one cover, we had three Asian models. Since then, we've had Gemma Chan, we've had Naomi Osaka, we did a joint print and digital K-pop cover. So that's been really cool too. And people were not really doing that. Like I was so happy to see that Elle put Blackpink on their cover. You know, I feel like people are now really going, okay, like let's branch out and do some other people who are are not the traditional ones. And again, some of our covers performed super well. Some of them were like a little bit, again, on a traditional level, they wouldn't be considered like a rousing success. But when I look at the entire year and how I think that it's helped to change the perception of who we are and how we can redefine beauty, I feel like all of them have been hugely successful. Right. That's super interesting. Well, I always think like audiences sometimes don't know what they like until you give it to them. You know, I don't know if you've ever been involved in like a a focus group. I hate focus groups so much, you know, in magazines that used to be very popular where they would do a focus group and they have a room of like 10 to 12 people. And they'd be like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? The problem is people like safety and comfort. So typically they're going to say, well, I just really like it the way I've always liked it. And so unless you're putting something out there that like sometimes if you're putting something out there that's brand new, some people are so allergic to change that they are just instantly going to say, I don't like it. You have to kind of do this slow build sometimes too. like put something out there, shock people. Maybe they're going to not like it at first, but eventually they're going to be like, oh, wait, this is kind of like the new way. So I've always been that way. I'm not afraid of scaring some people or angering some people, especially on social media. Like I definitely, you know, ever since Trump got elected, I've been pretty vocal on social 
And it's okay. I think at first I was nervous because you're the head of a mainstream brand that definitely our audience spans left, right, everything. And I, I've gotten some angry messages, but I'm actually okay with that because I think that we're we're choosing our lane and we have to have a viewpoint. Can you describe some of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome while building your career? Oh, that's a good one. To be honest with you, my own self-fear. I am, I feel like I'm kind of a stereotypical Asian American girl in that I am not good at promoting myself, right? Like I think that there is something within Asian culture where it's like, be humble, don't talk about yourself too much, like put your head down and just do do the work. And that very much was me. So I, I still feel uncomfortable doing podcasts and talking right. about myself. I'm like, really? Am I just, am I talking about myself too much? And so I think that's been the hard part has been trying to find that balance of how do you get your bosses or how do you get people in the outside world to understand the value that you're providing without feeling you're, like you're bragging. Right. And there is a delicate balance of that. And I see other people who've done it successfully in their careers, and I'm not naturally good at that. So I've had to train myself to do it. And so it's been that. I think that's been one of the big challenges. And then the other one has been to be okay taking risks, to be okay taking risks of walking away from a job that's not right for you, to take the risks of making a decision on content that you feel nervous about, but you're like, you know what, I'm just going to jump off the cliff and, and see if I can do it. It's been that. And then also, you know, I've taken over a couple brands from iconic founding editors. And I think that that's a challenge in itself because I love reinventing something, but it's also a challenge because you're taking on something that, you know, somebody has created, this is their baby and they're iconic and, I, I think that there's always going to be a part of the audience that's like, hmm, I'm going to kind of wait it out and see if I like this person. And I I don't know if it's an Asian thing, if it's just like a, a human thing. I want to be liked. Like I, I definitely have this thing of where I I don't want anyone disliking me, even though now I said like, I don't mind people being angry at me on social media, but like ultimately I do want to be liked. Right. So I have a hard time with... I think it's my own nerves, I guess, going into something that I want to make sure that I'm I'm doing it really well. Do you have any tips or advice for someone wanting to pursue a similar career in magazines or? You know what? The media industry, I mean, it's no secret. The media industry is evolving very quickly. And so when I hear, like I get messages from people, I get DMs and stuff from from young people saying, I really want to get into what you're in. I always say diversify. Because even though I do believe in the value of print magazines, I also think that there's not going to be a job where you're only doing the one thing, right? Like what you guys are doing too, like you, you have to exist on multiple platforms. So you also have to understand how all those different platforms work and right. be flexible enough that you can push into one direction or the next. And it's not even just platforms at this point too. It's not just print and digital and social and everything else. It's also understanding different parts of business. For example, as a magazine editor now, you might be asked to do branded content or you might be asked to work on a podcast, like to be flexible enough in your creativity and how you can tell a story that you could push yourself into one direction or the next. 
And also, since I mentioned business, I that's always my recommendation to anyone, not even just someone who wants to get into my particular field. It's that I think for so long when I was young, I thought, well, I'm a creative person. I don't have to know business. I don't have to know math. I think around 11th grade, I was like, I hate math. I am just going to ignore it and tell everyone I'm bad at math. And now I realize that no matter what you do in a creative field, you can't just be creative unless you have a partner or somebody who's doing all the business for you. You have to understand business because just even to understand your own personal finance, it's going to be that thing that helps to get you to that next level. Like you could, if you're happy, sort of exist on one plane. But if you do want to move up in the world, at some point, they're going to throw meeting with advertisers at you. They're going to throw marketing at you. They're going to be saying things about your P&L. And like, you know, I faked it till I made it for a long time because I didn't understand some of the terminology that some of our business people were using. So I got books. I literally got like those dummies books about reading like financial (laughs) models and stuff. And I taught myself. And I've been so inspired, honestly, by people who are entrepreneurs who go out and get investment or they, you know, work out their business plans and everything that even though I am not at a startup right now, I think that I have that startup mentality. And I think that by listening to podcasts and by reading books and and reading websites and watching videos and stuff about other people who inspire you, even if they're not in your particular field, I think it's so helpful to be able to get your brain working in a different way. So what's next? And are there any upcoming projects we could look forward to? Yeah. Well, since I mentioned podcast, we're launching a new podcast. So I host the Allure podcast, but we're also launching a new podcast called The Science of Beauty. So I'm co-hosting that with our executive beauty director, Jenny Bailly. And it's been so fun. We've done, let's see, we're kind of about three and a half episodes right now. And so each of the episodes is about different things. Like we did pores, hyperpigmentation, sunscreen is like a really fascinating one. And then also, you know, really looking at, we started doing planning for 2021 and thinking about, we've had so much success in the past five years. How do we take it forward and push it even more, right? Like so much has happened in the world, not only with COVID, but also with Black Lives Matter. Like where is our space within that? So I can't necessarily talk about all of like what we have planned yet, but we have some really exciting, meaningful stuff coming. Awesome. This was incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle. Thank you so much. And I'm literally, I'm so proud of you. I feel like when I see you guys pop up like on my social feeds, I'm always, I'm so excited for you and happy for what you're doing. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you to Mark Redito for the music. Please support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. And join us next week on Dream Up. Oh, oh.